Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, hello, and welcome back to a Thursday evening of the Nighthawk Nest. Not, I'm, I'm just kidding. Like we call it the Nighthawk Nest, but we're both University of North Georgia Nighthawks. Uh, yeah, I don't know about. I don't know about that. You don't like the Nighthawk Nest? No. I, I didn't. Mean, I didn't mean to kill your intro. I'm sorry. Keep well, that's it. also Matt Green. <laughs> just jumped in, but you've done so many shows with me now. We've just known each other for so long, Matt. That uh, it's okay. It's not rude. Once you be once you've known somebody for a certain amount of time, it's not. It's not the same as just a random guest chirping at the beginning of my intro. This is this is different. True that. I'm not just some rando. Mm-hmm. Um, before we get started, I want to talk about your uh, your photo shoot with the pups that uh, you posted to your Instagram and people can follow you at Matt underscore W underscore green on both Twitter and Instagram. But uh, the oh, pups, like I didn't know, I didn't know your, your new pup was not a purebred. No, we, uh, we like to call him a, a Muttweiler <laughs> because a hashtag Muttweiler. I don't know if you caught that, but um, yeah, cause he's a Rottweiler, but I think he's like, uh, got a lot of like German shepherd or something in him too. But uh He's looking less and less like a Rottweiler by the day, but um, but yeah, you know, I had to get some some social media content out there. Um, I'm basically a strictly a dog Instagram uh, account, you know, so you know, I don't know if that helps or hurts my following. I feel like a lot of people like dogs, but um, you can't go wrong there. But yeah, we were at a we were at a family function type mm-hmm. thing, like Memorial Day, and um. Tori was like telling someone like, yeah, we got it. We got another dog. And she's like, I didn't see another dog. You don't even put it on <laughs> social media. Like, what are you talking? Did you, did you really get a dog? You know? So I was like, you know, we're a two dog household now. We got to at least, at least get Maddox some, uh, some content out there. Yeah. It was about time. Like if it's not on social media, then it really didn't happen to a lot of people. So a couple of those were older pictures, but I was mm-hmm. like, he didn't have any of those puppy pics picks out there so get get him up there is he uh is he gonna be bigger than zeus no i feel like he'll be like half as big as zeus mm. does he which think I he's like, as big as zeus? which i feel like tori's disappointed about but i'm i'm cool with like a, a 75 pounder wait why is tori not about it she wants the bigger dog she wants, she the, wants the big dog yeah she wants the biggins interesting interesting um yeah i don't know like i'm i'm in the market um in the very next you'll see in the next couple months this sometime in the summer i'm dipping my toes back into the the primary dog ownership group to pair with the ladies dog um you got i've gotten the itch and you gotta i like the two dog household idea and just uh keep them on their toes and just have some company when uh the rents are out of the house just so they're not bored out of their mind all day that's true these are these are the things you have to concern yourself about. It's important. Um, did anything else pop up since uh, last Thursday that you would like to discuss, Matt Green? I don't know. I feel like you said it like there was something that I needed to mention. Like, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm just curious. I don't think so. No. What about you, man? When did I get back from vacation? I don't know. It's been a blur. I'm I'm thinking I got back like Wednesday, right? Because did we record last week? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we were back. Then. Yeah, you were the first one back. Okay, that's what it was. I started back on Thursday last week. Yeah, so I was back. Um, Tennessee just rampaging their way through the college baseball circuit happened last weekend, so I'm excited for that. 
this Sunday. How is that going? I'm, to be honest, I'm not paying attention. Well, we're in the College World Series now. And that's that's down to eight, right? Yes. Okay. And we play and it hasn't started on yet? Sunday. No, it starts Friday. Nice. Yeah, double elimination. It's it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. A couple of SEC teams in there. A couple ACC. Of course. Yeah. It couple. just means more, man. Well, uh, NC State knocked off Arkansas. Uh, Arkansas was just the premier team, number one all year long, got bounced in the Super Regionals. Pretty crazy, pretty crazy. Um, so yeah. shout out to the Wolfpack. This is a very Wolfpack-friendly podcast, and that's part of the reason I'm going <clears> to <throat> open today. Like, Matt, you know you know me. I love Dave Doran. Love a good uh, Raleigh, North Carolina segment on this very program, Matt Green. Um, NC State has a very interesting slate of games. I it, the, All the love, all the love in the college football world is surrounding one team in North Carolina. And it's not the NC State Wolfpack. There's nothing sexy or fun about the Wolfpack. They don't have the two-headed running back monster like North Carolina. They don't have the the potential number one overall pick quarterback in Sam Howell like North Carolina. So they're just under the radar a little bit, under the radar. But you look at the schedule, Matt. You look at what the NC State Wolfpack and Dave Doran, almost Tennessee football coach Dave Doran, could pull off. You're like, huh. This is a team that could be pretty solid, like S&P Plus, which uh, comes from Bill Connolly of ESPN, formerly of uh, Film Study Hall, and also author of a great book called Film Study Hall that I would highly encourage any uh, cultural football fan to read. They play at Mississippi State, which I've circled as something I'm going to definitely watch. You got Louisville at home. You got at Wake, at Boston College, at Florida State, at Mississippi State. Those games all go NC State's way. Suddenly, it's like a nine and three, ten and two type season. NC State schedule. I I looking at it, and I'm like, there the there, there's so much room for uh, gamblers. If you want to make a pretty fun, interesting bet, I think you bet on the Wolfpack right now. So I noticed when you're going through those those games, you didn't mention Clemson, you didn't well, mention North Carolina, North Carolina, you didn't mention up. you didn't mention at Miami. Oh, you did mention North Carolina? No, uh, what I'm saying is those three, like, that's the you thing. You think those are all losses right yeah, there? Yeah, and that's why they can go 9-3 and three if these games flip their way, and they're all so, toss-ups. That's what, I was, that's what I was getting at. Yeah, and so last year, five of their 12 games were decided by three points or less, mm. So, and they, and they were 3-2 and two in those games. So that's what it comes down to, and that, that's probably what, you know, what turns a team from a 4-8 and eight team into an 8-4 and four team like they did – from 2019 to 2020, but so I was reading a little Athlon Sports on uh, on the NC State. Shout World out to Pack, them, right? Shout out to Athlon Sports. But well, first of all, the model of consistency. I feel like NC State is a little underrated. Here I'll be honest. They've been between seven and nine wins, mm. nine in the last eleven years. Mm. Like for how up and down so much of the ACC is, like that's that's pretty respectable. You're you're in a uh, a bowl game at, at the very least a uh, respectable bowl game nine of the last 11 years like you got to respect that nc state but so i'm reading uh athlon sports preview and they're they're talking about uh you know devin leary um obviously bailey hockman he's he's gone he's at, at middle tennessee state now so devin leary is the guy right he just he only started four games last year look good though but but yeah and so in the article it says he uh bailey hockman was whatever he was fine but he wasn't the nfl caliber quarterback that nc state is used to and i'm sitting here like 
NFL caliber court NC State, like, is that some kind of quarterback factory? <laughs> I do some digging. Four of the last five starting quarterbacks NC State has had made it to the NFL, play in the NFL. Like, it's a low-key quarterback you over here. Do you think you can name the the four of their last five quarterbacks that are all in the NFL? Yes. Go for it. Mike Glennon. That is correct. Uh, Ryan Finley. That is correct. Russell Wilson. That is correct. I thought that would be the tricky one that gets you. And um, not Pip. Hold on. Who am I missing? Ah, right in between Glennon and Finley. Oh, um, oh, 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 okay. Oh, my goodness. This is going to drive me nuts. Right in between Finley. Um, day transfer. He transferred in. That's what I thought. Um, and he started some games in the NFL. Like, low-key a lot of games, honestly. Oh, my goodness. I'm just, what? No, hold on. Let me think. I'm still thinking. Uh, uh, tick, tock. Uh, how, give me 10 seconds. Give me 10 seconds. Give me 10 seconds. Um, hold on. Uh, nine, eight, seven. I think that's, I think the time's five, up. Five, four. It was a Florida transfer. Florida transfer. Florida transfer. Driscoll? No. Jacoby Brissett. Oh, Jacoby. Uh, One of the black marks on Will Muschamp's tenure is Jeff Driscoll, or no, Jacoby Brissett transferred, and that uh, Driscoll went to Louisiana Tech. Murphy transferred, Driscoll transferred, everybody transferred. But yeah, so NC State, I was like, wow, they're low key, and then obviously you skip a couple quarterbacks, and then you got Philip Rivers too. But um, but yeah, that's a uh, one stat that stuck out to me. So. I'll be uh, interested to see what what Devin Leary does as the as the full time guy. Yeah, I I think NC State it's going to be an interesting school, so just keep an eye on them. Shout out to the Wolfpack. They'll never say that we didn't give you the support that uh, you deserve on this very podcast. I'm You're- banking on them. I'm banking on them between seven and nine wins, though. What's the, what's the what's their uh, over under? I gotta I gotta find that their win total. Let me see. NC State 2021 odds wins. Mm-hmm. Uh, six. Oh, six? Yeah, Give buy me that. that. Hammer that. Yeah, NC I would State, hammer the six. They're going between seven and nine. Yeah. All right. We're going to make some people some money this fall. Like, go ahead and do it now before Vegas figures out the pack are probably guaranteed to win more than six games. Damn it. Um, There was some Caesar's, weird stuff. Caesar's already listening to this. It's The cover's blown. Hey, we. I don't know if you saw Blue Wire opening up uh, Win Studios and uh, the Win Resort in Vegas. So a lot of a lot of inside there. Like that's gonna be really cool. Studios actually in the in the lobby. Very excited that's about that. Um, Northwestern has had a time to say the least. Matt Green, have you been keeping up with the fact that they lost their AD to become the Mister Phillips to become the AD or the Commish of the ACC? That was a long time ago now. I think his name was Jim Phillips. Then they hired, they promoted from within their associate AD, who was um, controversial. And then he resigned. Mike Pulisky. Can you, can you refresh me? What was controversial about Um He only character? was there for 10 days. But it was, I think, a... What was it? Um, yeah. So, Polinsky was... Uh, 
So a number of students, faculty, and alumni responded to outrage. Poliski, in addition to the university, was one of the four defendants named in sexual harassment lawsuit filed by a Northwestern cheerleader in December, who alleged that he accused her of fabricating evidence and did not fulfill his duty as a mandated uh, reporter under the school's Title IX policy. Mm. Yeah. But... Not a lot great. of athletes, alumni, and executives at Northwestern were all about him and didn't really back it. Like, it got really ugly quickly. <clears throat> so there was a huge divide there. And I think the football program really wanted him to have it. And then they had to re- scramble because this is like a three-month process to finally just promote him. And then they go out and they get uh, former Tulsa Athletic Director Derek Gregg, um, who has a very storied history and is currently or was currently the NCAA's Senior VP for Inclusion, Education, and Community Engagement. Um, he's a Vanderbilt guy. Makes sense, a Vanderbilt guy ending up at Northwestern. But uh, yeah, Derek Craig is the new AD. Like, this has just been a very tumultuous, bad PR situation at Northwestern. Just a really, really bad look for them as a whole. So, what do you think in the end? Do you think this is a this is a is a this is a good good hire for him? I mean, we'll see. Like, it's not like Northwestern, like, Greg, Pitt, he, he doesn't have to do anything, really, right? Like, you got Pat Fitzgerald as long, like, he's turned away the NFL, he's good there, he's made it clear that he's happy in Chicago, or Evanston, whichever you want to call it. Um, I think the fact that he's not having to worry about that, and the basketball program kind of fell off, um, baseball is not a big thing in Northwestern, so, I don't know. I, I, I just think it's kind of like the Vanderbilt thing, where it's... I don't think it's a high pressure job at all. I don't think being the Northwestern AD is a is a high pressure situation. It's not like being. A, well, I, I, you can't compare it to Vanderbilt just because Northwestern can legitimately compete, like in the conference. You know, like they've been like they're not beating Ohio State. I don't think any anyone thinks anytime soon. But like they've gotten to a couple Big Ten championships, so you know that's that's way more than Vanderbilt can even say. So it's like. I feel like it's almost it's it's like a a better version of Vanderbilt, really. Yeah, um, I mean he's got the he's got the pedigree and he's got the the resume for sure. Um, he's been at Tulsa since 2013, but um, senior associate AD at Arkansas from 2000 to 06, assistant AD at Michigan from 97 to 2000. So um, we shall see. But I do think it's interesting that. Um, Northwestern's just had the kind of off season from hell that they've had. And it's all because of their own personal dis- uh, choices. Um, two, four, seven sports. Great website um, for all college sports fans have the five star recruits that um, ha- face prove it years in college football. Um, Matt, which name stood out to you most on this list? Well, yeah, this is, there's a lot of interesting names on this list. Definitely uh, is a little Georgia heavy. Uh, so I thought that was interesting. Um, one thing that stood out to me was the 2018 class. Is like the, you know that's, that's Justin Fields and Trevor Lawrence's class. They're number one and two players in that class. But it seems like there's kind of a lot of five stars from that class that didn't really turn out exactly what we thought. I mean, in just this – just this article alone, I mean, six of the it has six of the top twenty-five players from that twenty eighteen class on it, and and that doesn't even include a guy I thought probably could have been included here too was Zamir White, 
Like you have, they have Nolan Smith and Adam Anderson. Like Nolan Smith, I'm not as sure about. I think this is a real prove it year for Nolan Smith to to prove that he like has it. Like like they're saying, prove it. Adam Anderson, I think I think this is the year that he just kind of explodes on the scene and finally gets enough enough reps to to show what he can do. But but Nolan Smith, I'm not necessarily as high on. Like he's got a chance to have a great season, but he's still got to show you a little bit more and. And then someone like Zamir White, like, I feel like he's just, he was the five-star running back, you know, number one player in the country. And he's kind of talked about, like, he's a known commodity. But um, maybe it's just being a spoiled Georgia fan. Like, we've seen elite running backs year after year. And, and Zamir White is nowhere close to what Georgia's had in recent years. So I'm, I'm curious to see. He should even start. Like, Zamir White should see the field minimally this year. Like, it should be That's, mostly McIntosh and Cook and Milton. Like, I don't want see. Zamir White out there at all. Well, but being, the, like, the, the second full year removed from ACL, like, you saw, like, Nick Chubb from 2016 to 2017. Like, he really got back to his, his normal self in 2017. So I'm wondering if maybe there's a gear of Zamir White we haven't seen yet. And another year removed from the ACL surgery, we might see that. But but yeah, I'm with you. I think Kendall Milton is the best the best running back on this team. I think that's what we're going to see. But with how Georgia splits the carries, like none of those guys might rush for a thousand yards. But and I also thought Darian Kendrick was an interesting guy to be on here because you know he's a two year starter, all ACC kind of player at Clemson, and so he seems like he's he has panned out. But but Xavier Thomas is another one. I, I think he. He sat out due to COVID last year, right? So yeah. he's he's another one of those guys who I feel like you've seen on the field enough and you've seen enough flashes that like he looks legit, right? But he just doesn't have the production necessarily to to match it. And I think a full year, you know, back in the lineup, I think I think you're gonna see him show why he was like I think the number three player behind Fields and Lawrence. I uh I cannot believe Hunter Johnson's still on this list. He stinks. Like, and also just a, a Northwestern quarterback. What? What are we doing? Like, he's uh, spoiler alert, folks. He's uh, he's not going to prove it this year that uh, he was worth the the hype with Davis Mills. I think the name that Chase pops Thomas to me, hates Northwestern. I think that's the conclusion I've come to on this podcast sucks. for the last like, year. Don't bet on Pat Fitzgerald to fix any quarterback what are we doing like how many years have you watched the northwestern wildcats offense like they have not been able to figure out the offensive side of the ball his entire time there they win entirely because of their defense and he's a great defensive line but that offense stinks every year without question um the name that pops to me on this list is justin shorter with how much just production departed um with tony grimes and pitts at uf like everything is lining up for him to just be the next breakout Florida Dan Mullen superstar out wide. Like I think shorter should have a huge, huge year um, in Gainesville. That's a good call. I, um, when, when guys are around for, you know, a couple of years, you start to wonder, well, maybe they just shouldn't have been a five-star to begin with, you know, like Justin shorter. We've seen so little of him, you know, he, he didn't do much in his short time at Penn state. And then, but he's been playing behind a lot of productive receivers, receivers slash tight ends at Florida. So that could be the reason he hasn't got on the field. So that that's one that this is definitely a, a put up kind of year for him. But what what do you think about Bo Nix? I mean, he I forgot he was SEC freshman of the year. That that can't be right. 
like he was awful as a freshman. I, I'm trying to remember like who the candidates were that year, but I, I don't know how that happened. Um, I mean, it can't be worse than like I think what's going to benefit him most is just getting out of the Gus Malzahn effect, where the longer a quarterback is with Gus Malzahn, we've seen um, the worse it goes for them, right? Like Stidham suffered from this. All kinds of quarterbacks have suffered from this in the past. Nick Marshall. Nick Marshall. Yeah. Um, I don't know. He was just, he's insanely inaccurate, but he's also got TJ Finley in there now. Um, Demetrius Davis is there. I I think the pressure is on with Bobo in this group and Brian Harson is going to be uh, asked to make a, a big change with this guy. Like he's just, I don't know. Bo Nix is just, he's a gamer, but then you look at this stuff of like, he was 40th of 66 quarterbacks last season who took 50% other teams drop backs and but like when you watch them you're like i I don't understand how this works like he is what is i don't know he's just not the kind of quarterback that i would want in a modern college or really just a modern in it like just football offense in general like he's just too inaccurate he's too all over the place and i i don't know i don't i'm just not i I promise i'm promise i'm not calling you out specifically but what what is a gamer exactly like because like, I was thinking, around, like that dude just runs around, he's not scared thing. of contact. Like how many times did he just get drilled by Jordan defenders in that game last year? Like that dude was he fearless. was running for his life, and that's the only reason I don't necessarily see anything changing because I don't think Auburn's going to be any better on the offensive line. Like that was the biggest weakness of their team last year, and I don't know that it's gotten better. So, and I think uh, I think one of their guys was in the transfer portal. Not 100% on that. It may have been a defensive lineman. But I just don't see Auburn on the, on the offensive line getting better. I feel like Bo Nix doesn't get benched, though, because of the whole, like, gamer thing. I just feel like like they love him. Like, I feel like they want they want Bo Nix to be the guy. And I feel like he's like a, he's like a tryhard, right? Like, I feel like you just know he's giving everything he's got and like you see him running around on the field, like the fan base respects him. Like they want him to be better. I feel like he's going to be good enough to hold on to the job and, you know, lead Auburn to eight wins or nine wins maybe this year. But yeah, I just, I don't, you know, sometimes guys just shouldn't be five stars. You know what I mean? It's just like, yeah, I'm sure he was great in high school, but not all five stars pan out. And some of them, some of them could could uh, show why they were five stars this year. Like I think John Emery Jr. is another one. Like he could he could definitely show out this year at LSU. But um, some guys, you know, they just they just weren't five stars. Like Demetrius Robertson, I'm I'm sure when the the ta- composite composite talent rankings are are given to Georgia, like Demetrius Robertson's a five star and. I'm sorry, Demetrius Robertson was never a five star. Like I'm, he's really fast prospect coming out of high school, but but he was just never that good of a player. So and obviously he just entered the transfer portal as well. So um, it'll be interesting to see which which guys pan out. And and obviously we following recruiting, we know they won't. They all won't. I think he'll be uh, be just fine in Knoxville in the the Baylor raid system. I think Demetrius Robertson's gonna love it. Wait, wait, wait. Where's Demetrius Robertson gone? I'm just saying he fits naturally and Heupel's still looking out for some track athletes out wide. Like Tennessee's trying to add more guys in the portal at wide receiver at the moment. He's, he's probably good enough to, to play for somebody, but I think he was going to be like sixth, seventh wide receiver at Georgia. 
Yeah, he'd be like the number two or number three immediately <laughs> right now. It'd be him and Jalen Hyatt. Like, there's not there's a bunch of question marks out wide for for the falls right now. Um, Arizona State, like we're recording this late on a Thursday. Like Herm Edwards could be gone by the time some people are listening to this Friday morning. This is bad, Matt. Like the situation here is it's pretty it's pretty bad, and uh, it just kind of sucks for our old friend. Herm Edwards, he's done great work there. And it's like not even the traditional stuff, as someone pointed out. I forgot who made this thing of just like we're so used and conditioned to being a paying players illegally and like the McDonald's bags and all kinds of stuff that like when it's hiding players for official visits because of COVID protocol and breaking COVID protocol, like this is what is going to do them is just trying to get recruiting advantages by just getting people on campus when they weren't allowed to. It's just... uh it's just rare. Like this is a weird story and it's just dumb. And it, like Kevin Mawai being the whistleblower from Keyshawn, ESPN's Keyshawn Johnson, because uh, Herm didn't promote him to offensive line coach when their offensive line coach retired. So Mawai left for a pro job. Like then he turned on his coach because he coached him with the Jets. Like this story has so many different uh, strings and so many different layers that uh, it's just sad because, man, I like Herm. I like Herman. I like that Arizona State was figuring it out again, and I like Jaden Daniels, and they had a lot of a lot of hope this year, but uh, a lot of questions now about the future of the Arizona State Sun Devils. So is is this a fireable offense in your eyes? Oh yeah, that's what I'm, that's what I'm kind of confused on. Like it's, it's definitely shady behavior, I guess you would definitely say, but um, I, I don't know this. It seems like one of the one of the stranger recruiting violations we've heard. This isn't really what we expect when we hear. Well, it literally wasn't violation. possible unless during COVID. Like the stuff that he did could not happen in a normal season. Yeah, for sure. I guess I'm kind of surprised that like even like parents and like like prospects would go for that. You know, like. Yeah. That's almost the most surprising part of the story. It's like they knew that like this is illegal. Like when they're hiding you on campus, you're like, hey, this is uh, maybe not the best. This. So do we have all the details? Like where were they hiding them? Uh, I don't. I think it was in like different rooms, like di- hiding them around campus. Like I think it, uh, it hasn't come out like exactly where they were hiding. Them. It was just that they were hiding recruits on campus so that people didn't see them. That's wild. Herm, I feel like he was really putting Arizona State back on the map, too. This is a uh, What's going to happen is if they can tie him to knowing any of this, then he's done. But if they can't tie him to explicitly knowing and condoning that this was happening um, on his watch, then I guess maybe he can f- find his way out of it. But uh, I don't know. I think uh, we're going to gonna have to see. Yeah, I'm sure he had no idea that uh, players were just hiding in, in dorm rooms. I, he had no idea that three- and four-star prospects were just on, on college campus. That is, I had no idea. I just thought they, they just wanted to come see the campus. Well, I will tell you that the reason that college staffs are so stacked these days is to insulate these coaches so that there is plausible deniability of like, hey, we have people in charge of all of this, like recruiting coordinators and all this stuff where it's like, we don't want to know. And y'all just do what you got to do. But uh, I don't want to know. Like, that is a real thing that a lot of these... uh, Like, Nick Saban is so insulated at Alabama. Like, and Kirby, I think, is probably the same way at Georgia now, where it's like, they're so protected that uh, 
it, that there is a policy of like, how would we know if anything's going on, any improper benefits or any improper rule stuff? Like, we're not around. We're focused on the big picture. Hey, whatever, uh, whatever Saban's doing, I think all Georgia fans are hoping Kirby's doing the same thing. <laughs> I mean, um, yeah. Remember when Rush Probst tried to get them both axed? What a what a time! What a time! Um, the main event of this very off season show, Matt Green, is college football. Also coming to us from college football's biggest twenty twenty one defining games. Um, this comes to us from 247 Sports. Are all 10 of these games on here? The 10 that you would put? Or do you have other games on your calendar that you've circled that did not make this cut? Um, the really the only, One of the only ones I was surprised didn't make the cut uh, was Florida-Alabama. Because mm. that's a game we don't get every year, but maybe we're thinking... I guess is the logic that Florida is not a legitimate contender this year. So, cause I mean, you got Georgia, Florida in, in here at what number, number seven, you got Florida LSU in here at number nine. I just see Alabama, Miami, like it sounds sexy. That's number 10 on their list. And it's like, I feel like we've seen this game so many times. Like we, we've seen this non-conference team that's ranked, I don't know, somewhere between 10 and 20, play Alabama, a neutral site to start the year. Say, oh, maybe they could uh, give them a run. No, they're getting smoked. Like, I saw, like, um, some 24-7 released, like, I don't know if you saw some, like, week one predictions, uh, score predictions on some of those, like, early games. And their prediction for this score was, like, 52 to 24. It's like, who who just predicts a 52 to 24 just, like, blowout? Like, that's, that's where Alabama's at. Like, I, I feel like that's... I could, Alabama's going to win this game by like four touchdowns. Like it's not even going to be close. It, it sounds cool, Miami and, and Alabama and Atlanta, but I feel like that that game's going to be a total dud. Mm. I uh, I don't know about that. Like I think which of these do you think that's the most likely dud of the group that made this list? I definitely think so. I I mean I could see. I would say the next biggest like candidate to be a dud is you got at number six, Penn state at Ohio state. Like, mm, I don't think that'll be I think that, at all. They I think that'll probably really be well. a good game. I that'll just, I'm not sold. I'm not sold on Penn state, well, but I, mean, I think these the are classic. all going to be Penn state wins that one, but then Ohio state still wins the conference and Penn state just gets into the, just how many, the times, how many times has Penn state beaten one at Ohio state though? It seems like they're usually, it's at Andy home when, when they, they when they pull off those those like crazy upsets. It, it mm. seems like, but you know, Ohio State first year starting quarterback. I feel like Ohio State's like one of those biggest, like the biggest. I don't know, like different outcomes of the season because, like, obviously they can't be like bad. They're Ohio State, but they could either be number one, like run the table, or I could see like a, a two or three loss season this year, like. Ohio State, and especially with the Oregon uh, matchup you got, that's also at home. But uh, that's that's going to be a really interesting one for me. I I might that they had that at four. I may have had that higher. The one thing I'll say is number one, they have Georgia Clemson, and that's definitely the sexiest game of the year. Like we're going to be talking about that game like all year long, most likely. Like just as like a data point, like, well, they're, they're better than them and they're better than them. Well, they beat them. Like we're going to keep bringing up Georgia Clemson, however it turns out. 
but it, it the game is also like not really that important so it's kind of tough to put it at number one you know what i mean like if georgia loses it'll be unfortunate but i mean if they run the table and win the sec they're in the playoff no big deal and clemson if they lose you know there might be a, a an image issue and just a kind of we've talked about the acc being weak and then if they if they lose to an sec team to start off they might not get the benefit of the doubt late in the season but i mean if that's their only loss and georgia i would assume if they beat clemson is going to be a top four team by the end of the year you're gonna see like that's their only loss clemson's gonna get back in the playoff if they run the table so while while it's such a sexy matchup it might not really be nearly as important as an Alabama and Texas a like they have number two or like even Georgia, Florida, or like number three on their list, Iowa State, Oklahoma. Like I might've put Iowa State, Oklahoma, number one, just because Iowa State is a legitimate contender this year. And, and if Oklahoma's going to lose a regular season game, like that's, that's the one. See, I would put Iowa, Iowa State in this list. Would you? Yeah, Iowa State is like because I like we'll figure out how real Iowa is very quickly because I think Iowa, as we talked about last week, has a very real shot of being um, the biggest challenger out west and going to the Big Ten title game. I think they're the dark horse, and if they beat Iowa State early, I think that game is just uh, always fun in general. But I think it'll be a it'll be a big one. Um, I don't think Texas Oklahoma made this list, right? No, like Iowa State at Oklahoma is probably the right one. Alabama and um, perhaps we'll see. Um, you know what? With Georgia though, Georgia Clemson, like Florida Georgia is interesting, but I don't think Florida LSU belongs here at all. Like I don't think that game's going to mean anything. Like I think that uh, unless you really believe LSU is going to have the turnaround, like I'm, I'm still pretty that's, pretty out on uh, that one. I'm more that's in a on good Florida point. State Notre Dame. Like Florida State Notre Dame is, I think, going to be sneaky close. Like the amount of transfer production that Florida State just brought in, and with the amount of loss production in Notre Dame, I would not be surprised at all if Florida State beats Notre Dame. I, and I think this is going to be a fun early test. I think Notre Dame is going to take a step back this year, and I think Florida State's going to punch them in the mouth. It, it's going to be fun. I could definitely see Florida State uh, beating some people this year. I what do you think? So what do you think about Cincinnati Notre Dame? Think? I think that's huge for Cincinnati. Not a big deal for Notre Dame. Oh, see, I disagree. I mean, I think Notre Dame, they, they, I mean, they look at themselves, especially not playing in the ACC, like not having to play Clemson. Like they look at themselves as just a regular, as regular in the playoff as, as Oklahoma or Ohio state at this point. You know what I mean? Like, and that Cincinnati game, that's going to be maybe the best opponent on their schedule. Like, I mean, North Carolina, I guess, could be a tougher matchup, but but Notre Dame has got a lot of these games that I don't I don't think they they go unscathed in all of them. Mm. How many of these How many of these toss up games do you think Notre Dame wins? If you got North Carolina, Cincinnati, you include Florida State. They got USC, right? Like, I just think they're going eight and four, nine. I think they're going eight and four this year. Like that's my prediction. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, I. I mean, Jack Cohn's gonna be their quarterback this year, man. The thing with Florida LSU though is I don't think either of those teams is a legitimate contender. But there's something. There's just something always exciting about that game, and I feel like 
when what's the what's the title of this article like season defining yeah games it's it feels like a tone setting kind of kind of game like it's it's usually like early october right i don't even know when the the date is of that game but it's it, it always seems like one of those first big rivalry games and so that could be what they're going for for season defining because it seems like that game's almost going to be like a, a crossroads, like of which direction these two teams are going. Like, is it going to be, is Florida going to contend again, or is it a bounce back year for LSU? I kind of think that's, I, I could see them meaning that when it comes to season defining. And also that game is October 16th. So that's going to be the week, the week before the their bye week before the Georgia game. Yeah. So I mean, you got you got Alabama the week three, Tennessee week four at Kentucky, and then Vanderbilt, and then at LSU. Florida could be looking at their second, maybe even third loss uh, by that week. So it, it could be interesting. Surprised USC didn't have a game that made this list. Let me pull up USC because I think they're still the dark horse and probably should be considered the favorites in the Pac-12. Um, they have a real shot at the playoff. Um, I think Oregon has real questions. Without Tyler Shook at quarterback, they're going to go in with potentially Anthony Brown. Um, let me look at theirs. I'm pulling theirs up right now. And also to your to your point of like which of these could be duds, I think Oregon at Ohio State. I think that one does have potential to be a Ohio blowout. State them out, yeah. And also oh, a- USC at a- Cal. A- Give me USC a- at Alabama. Cal. USC and Cal. That's a potential in November Pac-12 decider. You know me, I'm a big uh, Justin Wilcox, Bill Musgrave, Chase Garbers guy. Hey, who knows? That could be it. At at Cal? At Cal in Berkeley. Who knows? Who knows? Matt Green. Um any other college football nuggets? You got some nuggets I I seem to recall that you'd like to Oh, I do have some nuggets. Some mm. some closing nuggets here. So uh one thing you do didn't you remember make... when we went to Wendy's one time in between classes and you ate a shit ton of nuggets? shit ton of nuggets i mm. probably if i know myself i would have eaten some nuggets and a junior bacon cheeseburger that was uh that was always my wendy's jam you know you get a little bit of chicken get the junior bacon that's uh that's where it's at but i don't remember that specific time but uh i do i am fond of some wendy's mm. what's your good um, wendy's order i that's honestly that's one of the few places that i have like multiple orders mm. i most places i go get something i got like the same thing i order every time i don't know example. about you like i mean if i'm going to like taco mac like i'm ordering the same wings like to every what? time just like an order of just like 10 traditional like buffalo like hot buffalo oh you don't you don't do all flats you don't uh no, I don't. I, I can't stand people who do all flats or all drums. That's oh, I'm like, an all flats guy. That's like being people always ask like uh, you're a, an ass or a, a boobs guy. You know, <laughs> it's like who, why, in what universe do we have to choose one or the other? Like you just you need all of it, you know. And so sometimes I like the flats, sometimes I like the uh, the drums. I don't I don't see how you could he could choose one or the other. Mm. This took a turn, but it did take a turn. But um, one a uh, headline, a couple headlines we missed. Uh, have you seen the newest bowl sponsor? Oh no, the Jimmy Kimmel L.A. Bowl. What? 
Yes, it's going to be played in SoFi Stadium. Jimmy Kimmel is literally like the name of the bowl game. <laughs> it's absurd. It's like an early season bowl, like December like 18th or something. But yeah, Jim, the Jimmy Kimmel LA Bowl. And then there's a, a home and home series that uh, you, we did not announce. Miami and Auburn, 29, uh, 2029 and 2030, doing a home and home series. So I have a question for you. Mm. When was the last time Auburn and Miami played each other? Long time ago. Uh, 1994. That is incorrect. The answer is 1984. Oh, Auburn is 7-4 and four all time against the Hurricanes. 1984 is played in the Meadowlands. To start the season, number one Auburn lost to number ten Miami twenty to eighteen. That was uh, Hurricanes were the reigning national champions, and uh, this was the first game of Jimmy Johnson's career tenure at Miami. And so they actually ended up going eight and five that year, despite beating number one in the opening game. But uh, yeah, Jimmy Johnson's first year at all at Miami was the last time these two teams played. So. College football expansion. You're seeing all these sexy home and home games. I love it. Miami and Auburn, 29 and 30. Like they've played a bunch of times. Like looking at it, like in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Like it's like a regular thing. So we need these lo- these teams that are geographically close to each other. Like we've talked about Virginia Tech, Virginia Tech, and Tennessee. Like these teams just need to be playing each other. It's just it's so good for the sport. It's uh, it's it, you love to see it. Mm. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm also just still annoyed that Charlotte is getting Georgia Clemson this year. It's just, I'd be, I, I really think I'd be a lot more amped for it if it was in, uh, it was in Clemson Stadium or in. Well, don't in worry because I think it's, I think 2023 and 2024 they're going home and home. So I think, I think next year Georgia I think plays I think Oregon. Mm. In the in the Chick Fil A kickoff, and then yeah, I think Georgia Clemson is going to be, and I think one of the years they play Clemson might be one of the years they're uh, they're playing UCLA going out to the Rose Bowl too. So these Georgia at a conference games are going to get a lot a lot of fun in the next few years. Absolutely. Honestly, all over college football, they're they're going to be a lot of fun. Absolutely. All right. Well, go follow Matt at Matt double uh, Matt underscore W underscore Green keep up with his stuff there um go check out his rottweiler putt his uh rot his muttweiler and muttweiler yes sir rottweilers and it's a tongue twister um on his instagram <laughs> but uh also follow myself at chase underscore thomas uh if you're an apple podcast listener matt and i would appreciate it if you gave us a five-star rating and a review uh you can email us if you would like us to answer college football questions during this offseason uh, at chase thomas podcast.com or chase thomas podcast at gmail.com but you also can go to chase thomas podcast.com um, to get access to all of our previous episodes and all of my writing uh go do all of that for that guy down there in dacula georgia how dare you sir <laughs> had to do it to him you know i had to do it to him and uh for myself up here in knoxville tennessee that is all i've got sir we will be back next week yes sir
All right, the Thursday evening edition of the Chase Thomas Podcast rolls on, where I am still the aforementioned Chase Thomas, and this guy on the other line, somehow only like two miles away from me, we learned prior to this recording. It's Stats by Will, fellow Knoxvillian and lover of Jordan Beck and Drew Gilbert. Dingers, Will, good evening, sir. How are you? Uh, doing well. Good to hear from you. I am quite excited about uh, watching the boys in Orange take the field in Omaha this weekend. I wish it was not Sunday. Like the Sunday thing is just like I, I, I need it on Saturday. I, I don't like that we're extending this out into Father's Day. Like I've already warned family of just like I will not be not be all the way there mentally in the afternoon. So whatever we got to do, we got to do before. And if we lose, then I'm going to be pretty pretty uh upset but um uh, thankfully all my family is ut people for the most part and mm. most went to ut so they're all on the same page that's that's good the time thing is always troubling because i i'm a big fan of early games in general because you just get out of the way but if you lose then you think about it for like 10 straight hours the worst thing i did was um revealing to like i maybe not even revealing but just pointing out to to the to the lady the sports renaissance woman that uh living on the west coast is ideal if you're a sports reporter like west coast life is delightful if you uh you have to watch a lot of sports uh for a living because everything's done early like i could be done with the Braves game at like 6:30 sounds amazing like i uh it's just one of those things where they get football early in the morning and it's just uh everything wraps up at a decent hour so you're not up until 132 watching these nba playoff games yes the east the eastern time zone is just brutal for these particularly like the the clippers jazz friday game that's coming up uh i am not looking forward to seeing what time i go to bed no, it's uh, it's gonna be rough. But um, we've had this idea where I I think not just because Tennessee basketball is back, folks. And let me just say, Rick Barnes, <laughs> we 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 tip the cap once again on this off season turnaround you just put together, headlined by uh, Kennedy Chandler. But Tennessee is a baseball school first and foremost. People forget that. Will, but second, we are a basketball school, and. There is a lot of fun college basketball stuff that I think we can still get into. And like when I was thinking about different ways we could like I, I'm really impressed by your work. And if people have not already gone to your website, Stats by Will, go do that. Uh, as of this recording, I'll put links in the bio and all that kind of stuff. But um, I think there's a way to like incorporate what you're doing onto this podcast, um, a weekly thing, especially when the regular season comes back and They'll be here before you know it because we got like what eighty days until uh, Tennessee's playing Bowling Green, so basketball will not be too much longer after that. Um, so we're just gonna do some deep dives into some stat-based college basketball analysis, and um, I think because we're both SEC guys, will we are going to start with an SEC overview here. Um, now that things are mostly finalized. Um, what uh how would you like to paint the broadest of strokes in regards to the SEC right now? I think it's on the rise as a conference. I really do. Um I think there there have been some years uh in relatively recent memory where you could have easily said the SEC was the worst of the big six conferences. And there were a couple times 
where you could have made the case for, you know, the AAC being better. But it seems like now the SEC has sort of settled in into being not necessarily as hyped as, you know, the Big 12 or Big 10 year in, year out, or even the ACC, but being like the third or fourth best conference yearly is not a bad thing. Like, that's pretty good when you have 31 to pick from. Yeah. Um, so where would you like to start? What would you, like, if you had to do tiers right now, well, like, if you're looking at just what teams are bringing in, all the transfers, everything like that, um, how would you, how would you say, let's do this, just with the roster movement, who made out the best thus far and who made out the worst? Uh, I, I think that the teams that you're going to see at the top of these lists are probably pretty common. Alabama, Tennessee, Kentucky are what I, what I would say would be like tier 1A in this sense. All three have very real, very serious national title or even or final four hopes first and foremost. Then you can start thinking national title. But, I mean, all, all, all three of those teams should open the season in the top 15. And if you, if you start out there, I mean, you have a good reason to think you're going to have a really good uh, year to come. Uh, but beyond that, I, it's it's kind of hard because there are five teams that stand out in the SEC, but there's three that I think are just that special bit more. Those three I just mentioned. Behind them, Auburn and Arkansas, I think, could be in that Tier 1A if they have a thing or two break correctly in their favor. The I, I'm always fascinated by Arkansas in particular because Musselman is hell-bent on using the transfer market to his advantage every single year. Uh, I don't know if you caught this on ESPN, but they had a little piece where they interviewed coaches about uh, how they, you know, are building their rosters. And Musselman mentioned, like, they will say that they've offered or have chased guys in the transfer market that they actually don't really want, but want other schools they're competing with to focus attention on so that they can get the guys they really do want. Uh, I'm just utterly fascinated by his uh, love of transfers. So, I think, as usual, those are going to be the teams you're looking for. Florida did some intriguing stuff, and so did LSU, but I think it's those five that are really at the top of this list. Alabama, Tennessee, Kentucky, Auburn, and Arkansas. I think Kentucky is super fascinating, too, because Calipari had to really adjust with how bad of a season this was, and I think this what his what his decisions this offseason thus far seem to indicate to me that he has learned quickly that the way he was recruiting, the way he was winning in the past is not going to win anymore. And he is uh, changing his strategy. Don't you think? He completely is. It's the most uniquely built Kentucky team that I think he has had to date because, you know, not that they were routinely pulling in the Zion or RJ Barrett level recruits the last couple of years, but they were still heavily focusing those teams on, you know, top 25 five-star recruits year in, year out. And uh, for them to make this kind of sudden change, and it's clearly a reaction to last year when they had the shortened off season, to go pick out C.J. Frederick, to go get Cullen Grady, to go get these guys that uh, I feel like in the past, you know, Kentucky would have just not cared about. They probably would have passed on the transfer market uh, almost entirely, uh, but I, I agree with you. I think the way they've built this team is completely different than in years past. And I'm honestly pretty excited to see what they do with it. Yeah. There's just something weird about bad Kentucky. Like even when Tennessee went into Lexington and that game was really fun, which feels like forever ago, 
um that was the keon game where he he keon and mm-hmm. um why am i playing and uh springer just like really went off in that game in the second half i recall i remember uh that being just a really really fun fun night yeah and, and like for a moment you forgot kentucky was five and twelve yes. or whatever they were it didn't feel like when you're watching like, it because it's just like kentucky you're just conditioned like they're awesome what a great win yeah Whereas, like, at the end of the season, uh, I think everyone was like, oh, that was just a win over a nine-win team. I, I imagine it was at least somewhat similar to, if I could remember it more vividly, when North Carolina went 8-20 and the one season in the early 2000s. That, that's the only thing I've seen where, like, a blue blood, blue blood in my lifetime just completely crapped out uh, out of nowhere in a season. And... It, it, you're right. We, bad Kentucky is weird and not really in a good way. It, as much as it is easy to hate on Kentucky and hate uh, what they do and uh, the fervor of the fans, it's the SEC basketball is just better when they're good. Simple, it's as simple as that. When Kentucky is at the top, the league is better. I, uh, I'm not ready for Alabama just to be the cream of the crop of SEC basketball. It's just not fair. Like, I don't like it. Nate Oates, like, I was at the Alabama-Tennessee game, and uh, that was that was brutal. I think my parents came out for that game, but it was it was not fun, and it was just one of those things where I turned to them, and I was like, oh, they're going to win the math game. Like, Alabama, playing Alabama is just uh, very frustrating because Rick Barnes does not coach that way, and Pons can only block so many shots in, uh, in yeah. one game before you're like, yeah, this is just not happening, and um, I don't know. Do you do you still think about like the way we used Keon Johnson and Springer for the most part last year and just the lack of spacing and um, not going small more and just the way that Barnes coached? Because when you think about this new group coming in for Tennessee, because they just completely changed everything this offseason outside of Volkerson coming back for his 19th season. Um, what, do, what do you think about that? Do you think Barnes is going to open it up and change his philosophy similar to what Calipari is going to do? I think he is kind of set in his ways to an extent. Um, but that being said, you know, a, a guy who has won as many games as he has and as successful as he is, and let's be honest, gets paid as much as he does, should learn something from last year's dud of an offense. I mean, you, with, without getting too deep into it, they've been doing some research this offseason on how many teams still use those lineups with multiple non-shooters like Tennessee did about a third of the time last year. And the answer is the vast majority of top 25 offenses, I think it was 21 out of 25, didn't use a double big lineup at all. Like the the majority of coaches out there, you know, by the end of the season would not have played Pons and Fulkerson together. They would have split them up and probably just rotated or tried to limit the time those two spent on the floor because, I mean, you saw it down the stretch of the season when Tennessee went double big, the floor shrunk. There wasn't as much driving space. There wasn't as much uh, lanes to get through, to pass through for open shots. Uh, And that was why, you know, when when Tennessee had those good nights, like uh, the Kansas game in particular sticks out, it wasn't really because they got great shots. It was because that was just the night of the year they were going to hit 70% of their mid-range jumpers. It was like the UCLA-Gonzaga game in that way. But you you really do hope that at minimum the I think the having Justin Powell on the team in particular will help with this that Barnes sees the need for more spacing and you know maybe if he doesn't fully commit to playing just one big at a time maybe he will go 
both Huntley, Hatfield, and Fulkerson on the court at the same time, you would hope that they've used the offseason to give one or the other some sort of a useful jumper, which at least spreads the floor a little more and uh, enables Tennessee to have, you know, something more than an unwatchable offense. Yeah, I just, I, I don't know if I can do it another year. Hopefully it's different and hopefully we learn from it. But man, I'm going to miss Pons. He's such a, he was such a fun player to watch for such a mm-hmm. long period of time. I, I very much enjoyed the Ponzi experience and I'm, I'm going to miss him. Um, how do you think Powell fit in? Do you think they'll get, just let him shoot the lights out? Like, how do you think he's going to fit offensively? Pretty well. I mean, I think the, the cool thing about it is immediately the second he steps on campus, uh, he is Tennessee's most proven and best catch and shoot uh, guy. Like Vescovi is pretty, Vescovi's pretty good, but uh, I mean, the thing that I feel like I've noticed with Vescovi is it's either you're going to get five for six or you're going to get one for seven and you really don't know what it is night to night. Powell is a bit more consistent um, and, you know, should be able to more regularly shoot like 40% night after night for Tennessee, which is what they need. Uh, if you can have that consistent guy who's opening up the floor, forcing guys to crash on him uh, 25 feet out, that is really going to help with spacing. And uh, I think the hope is that Powell will be a little bit better defensively at Tennessee and more committed to it than he was at Auburn because, you know, Auburn's defense last year was nothing to write home about and uh, wasn't really in 2019-20 either. So Mm -hmm. if they can get a better defensive effort from him more consistently, uh, I think he is going to be a very critical player for Tennessee's March and possibly April fortunes. Do you think Bama should be considered the favorites in this conference heading into next year? Yes. Uh, I, I think they've just got the best roster. They got the best system. It is honestly very funny to me that uh, an SEC coach in his second year was like, what if we just do what the NBA has done for <laughs> seven years? And it immediately made them far and away the best team in the conference. Um, but I, I wonder if other coaches I, I think, hate that. I wonder if other coaches like the idea that Calipari wasn't aware of this seems very unlikely to I me. Like, I feel like Rick Barnes uh, has w- like made instead of instead of taking away the mid range line, he's made it thicker on the practice court. <laughs> like it's a foot wide now, and that's the only lane you're supposed to shoot in. But no, I, I really do think they've got a great roster. Them getting J.D. Davidson was so big for them because now uh, you know, it's it hurts losing Herb Jones, of course. And, you know, John Petty graduated after 17 years of college basketball. But the, you get Shackelford back. You get Quinterly back. Primo is back. They added Noah Gurley from Furman. If that plus David's, Davidson is the uh, starting five, that really could be the best starting five in the conference. Um I mean, right as of now, Tennessee is the only school that I think could match that. So uh, I I do want I'm I'm wanting to see how they make some improvements depth wise. Like if Keon Ellis can step up, if uh, Juwan Gary can. Um, But yeah, right now, I think they're the best team in the SEC. Uh, I agree with you. It is uncomfortable thinking of Alabama as the number one dog uh, in the SEC. I would like to see them as, as a Tennessee fan knock down like precisely one peg. Like if they were the twenty, <laughs> if they were twenty first best this season, I would be like, okay, that's acceptable. Because then they're like a five or six seed, and they're not really on your mind every single day from November to April. Yeah. 
Man, I uh, yeah, that would be great. At least they're not good at baseball, and we just don't have to think about them in baseball right now. Um, <laughs> a brief break um, from them. Um, how well uh, did preseason projections like Kempa and Bart Torvik hold up in recent seasons in terms of the SEC? Well, they did pretty well across the board. Um, uh, they will typically, and this is kind of the same with the preseason vote, like for media polls, They'll miss on a couple of teams. Like, I mean, they underrated Alabama last year, though I think everybody did. Um, Kentucky was obviously a miss. But for Ken Palm specifically ended up within 25 spots out of 357 total teams on uh, 10 of the 14 SEC squads, which is pretty good for numbers with zero games implemented that are entirely based on previous performance and some sort of uh, half-witted roster projections. And in 2019-20, they were even better. They were pretty much entirely accurate to the final standings outside of being too high on Missouri and Tennessee. So uh, if you go to Bart Torvik's site, you know, you might be a little confused at some of what you see. Like, I am always a little bit befuddled at his site's love for Florida in particular. Uh, There is, I, I do think there needs to just be something built into projection systems like you just click a button that says Mike White coaches this team and it takes them down 10 spots. Mm. So some that would help. Okay, but, well, uh, Danny White listens to this podcast, uh, Will, so we got to <laughs> be very careful with what we're talking about with uh, in regards to his brother. That's true. Uh, no, I, uh, I, well, I love uh, Danny White, Mike White, <laughs> the whole White team. Uh, they're all wonderful. If they are willing to uh, sponsor my website, give mm. me two courtside seats to important games. That would be wonderful. Well, he's got bigger. Um, he's not looking for sponsors. He's actually looking for dinner. So I don't know if you've heard about the all in foundation. Uh, well, oh, oh yeah. Danny White's got yeah. some, he, he's big fish hunting at the moment. He's got bigger priorities than no. sponsoring websites. He's, he's not trying to spend money. He's trying to make money. <laughs> but uh, yeah, sum it up. The, the, the preseason projections, even this far out are generally, pretty solid but, uh, mm-hmm. but if you check closer to september october especially when ken puts his out um they are you know more accurate at that point because all of the roster movement is finalized uh aside from very late breaking injuries everybody knows who will be playing on opening night at that point yeah very cool very cool um early favorites for you for sec player of the year Barring, I mean, I guess if Kennedy Chandler does not play in enough games, he won't qualify for this. But um, if it can't be Kennedy Chandler, who is it going to be? <laughs> well, he's on my list. Uh, I will say I'm a sucker for Homer picks. And I think the odds of a future top 10 draft pick being SEC player of the year, definitely not that crazy. Uh, but, you know, again, all of these could change due to injuries, due to team fortunes, due to whatnot. But I would say my list of five plus Chandler are uh, Xavier Pinson at LSU, mm. Jabari Smith. And Javon Pinson's Quinterly the one who at... came from Mizzou, right? I'm sorry? Xavier Pinson's the one who transferred from Mizzou, correct? Yes. I, I will note with Pinson, because he's the only player I have on this list that I wouldn't... He shot lights like out against top... Tennessee, I seem to recall, and that went against Tennessee in Knoxville. Am I misremembering that? Was he the one who was shooting lights yeah. out? He scored 29 points and yes. uh, turned around and I five the next sec game and that's kind of his whole career is it's like he will show those amazing flashes and then immediately turn back to just mid mm-hmm. but you 
I would think in a system like LSU is where they, they score a lot of points, but they are the most efficient offense in the SEC, I think, two years running now. But but with guys like Pinson, you know, Colin Castleton at Florida, uh, got, you know, guys in that second, third tier, it's always important to know, like, the last player to win SEC Player of the Year without being on one of the league's three best teams by conference record was KCP uh, mm. eight years ago. So it, it's it like Pinson's fortunes are ex- entirely reliant on how LSU does like season long. So that's why Surprise I, I Anthony honestly Edwards think he, I'm sorry. Surprise Anthony Edwards didn't win. Yeah, he he kind of had like an on and off season, but he did score a lot. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's it's hard to do when your team isn't in that constant SEC network every night conversation is like Yante uh, Maiden at, I do not know how to pronounce his name correctly. So if he is a listener of your podcast, I apologize. Uh, but when he was at Georgia in 2017, 18, the year Grant Williams got his first uh, player of the year trophy. They, I, if I remember correctly, they gave it to him as like a shared trophy, but like Maiden's numbers across the board were way better. He just played on a crappy Georgia team. And that would be my fear with picking Pinson. Mm. But I think he has a good shot at being the league's leading scorer, to be honest. He's going to get a lot of chances to shoot. Mm. He's going to get it, uh, a lot of bags thrown his way in Baton Rouge, I also <laughs> would uh, would suspect. Um, but that's just yeah. me. That's just me. Um, which returners in this conference are the most important? Uh, Quinterly at Alabama, for sure. I mean... Herb Jones got player of the year last year, so it's not like a hot take to just pick the next guy up. But to be honest, when March rolled around last year, especially with Jones fading at the free throw line late, it felt like Quinterly was the the most important player to their postseason fortunes. I mean, if it went to projections like 1 to 14, this would just be another best player in the best team award. So, I mean, it wouldn't be like a shocker. But Quinterly really is huge to what Alabama's trying to do. Uh, Colin Castleton at Florida, I mentioned. Castleton really came on in conference play last year and was so good in certain games. Uh, I would love to see how he can improve this year. And then uh, kind of, I think, an out-of-the-box pick for number three here, Victor Bailey at Tennessee, Mm. uh, I think, be a huge factor in what Tennessee does or does not do this upcoming season. Bailey, I know, is quite the frustrating player for Tennessee fans to watch because he did have some amazing performances, particularly in that backstretch of SEC play. But then I, I know, I think in that first Florida game, he shot one for 11 from the field. If Bailey becomes a little more consistent of a scorer and particularly tunes it up on defense, which I think he has taken to heart and will be uh, working a lot harder on the soft season, Bailey could end up being the most improved player on Tennessee's entire team. Uh, and he doesn't have to improve. Like he was a sharp shooter. It's just I don't even think it's improvement. I just think it's consistency. Like just the the games where he's yeah. just getting in cardio versus the games that he's shooting six for seven from three. Like it's just it, it, he's very Tony Snellian in the way he plays in Tennessee. That's mm-hmm. a deep Atlanta Hawks cut for the diehard Atlanta Hawks <laughs> fans listening to this podcast. But yeah, continue. But I, I really do think, like, of all the returners on Tennessee's roster, I mean, Fulkerson could be a good pick here, too, of course. But, I mean, when you're a six-year senior, there's only so much improvement you can do. Bailey, though, I do think there are pockets where if he takes the next step up, uh, I mean, 
it, it is crazy to think about, but like we could end up talking about all SEC Victor Bailey in nine months. I'm excited for him and Powell on the floor together. The spacing that those two should provide, um, that Kennedy Chandler should find with those guys, uh, should be great. Um, I also just mm. really like Triple J, and I'm curious to see what happens with uh, with him this year. I still think there's untapped potential with him at the four. I still would like to see him get for a lot of run there. That that I think would end up being Tennessee's best lineup, regardless mm-hmm. of uh, what Huntley Hatfield ends up being, is JJJ at the four, just because. I mean, like I mentioned, the amount of double big lineups uh, in existence for top end offenses right now are minimal. Unless you've got guys who are extremely efficient on two pointers, like Tennessee was in eighteen nineteen, it's just not a good option. And by the end of that season, anyway, they were playing Grant at the five. So if they end up going Triple J at the four, uh, I would say like you know night one that is probably the best lineup. Yeah, I would agree. Um... Which newcomers are most important in the SEC this this fall? Well, so I'm cheating a little bit here and mm. taking this to like transfers, if that's all right. No, that counts. Newcomers lot- counts. Yeah, that that counts because if, if it's a new stop, that that counts. Lots of new transfers. Number one for me, Myron Jones at Florida comes over from Penn State, and honestly, night one could be their best scorer and best player. Uh, I'm curious to see how he fits in because. Uh, it's not like offense is exactly Mike White's first thing uh, as a coach. So I want to see if they can turn him loose, let him do his thing, pick up 20 points a night. Because if they do that, Florida really will be a top 20 team this year. Kellen Grady at Kentucky is another one who should be Kentucky's best player on the first night. Maybe not at the end of the season, but at the start, I think he is the most important guy. Uh, I mentioned Jabari Smith at Auburn probably the most important freshman in the league. Uh, the one that currently looks to be most likely to be a top five pick. Uh, he'll be handed a high usage role in the high octane offense. And then uh, Katie Johnson coming over from Georgia to Auburn is also of interest. I want to see what he does with more time at uh, like on the court. And especially just, I want to see what he does where he's not being coached by Tom Crean because that whole experiment seems uh, to be not going so well. That doesn't sound right. The a Tom Crean experiment not going well in in the twenty first <laughs> century. That seems unlikely. Well, that that seems unlikely. Um, it's also just amazing that Georgia can't figure out their basketball program. It seems like with just the amount of talent <laughs> in that state, that it should not be this complicated. It should should it not be like it's not like Georgia has to be great. They don't have to be Alabama. They don't have to be Kentucky. But Georgia should be like an Ole Miss, right? Where they're like consistently mid-pack, if not better than that. Like just they're because at least they have in. the talent in the state to get a couple of those. Like Jalen Brown just leaving for Cal. And um, I mean, I, like the, you could go up and down the list of talented uh, Georgia locals um, that just don't don't even consider UGA and stuff like that. It's very strange. Very strange. Did you know that they have not had a single-digit seed in the NCAA tournament since 2002? That sounds right. Who would, let me think of who the coach was then. Was that Felton? Before Felton, it was Jim Herrick who uh, he That's got not fired. That's a real person. The... <laughs> <laughs> that can't be real. I, I don't think that's real. Is he like in between Tubby and uh, Felton? Like I don't remember him at all. Um, that's crazy. That uh, that's crazy. But also, 
who's not in favor of that? Like, shout out to Georgia just being a, a terrible basketball program. I, you love to see it. You love to see it. Um, <laughs> last thing, and we'll wrap up the SEC preview of our college basketball season. Will, um, as of now, how many tournament teams can we expect the SEC to produce? Uh, my early lean here is seven. I, I really do think all of Alabama, Tennessee, Kentucky, Auburn, Arkansas are like day one preseason locks. Like where they end up remains to be seen, but at minimum, those are five teams. I'd feel pretty confident about eventually being in the top 25, not even the top 20. Mm-hmm. Uh, six here is Florida, which is really frustrating because to me, like Florida has one of the 25, maybe even 20 best rosters entering the season in college basketball. But it really is like, does, does anybody trust Mike White to coach them to or above that potential? He's one of one of the strangest coaches to evaluate in the entire sport. Because so, like, since he came on board at Florida, only Kentucky has more quad one wins. But only three or four schools, if I remember correctly, have more quad three losses. It's hmm. like he pairs a man with just absolute turds of game. <laughs> it, it's it's mind boggling to watch because you like season by season, Florida will end up being like twenty third in Ken Palm with fourteen losses, and I and when I'm looking at it, I'm like that doesn't sound accurate. But then when you look at it uh, in depth, it's like oh yeah, Florida beat Auburn by twenty three points and then turned around and lost to Georgia by seven. That's just <laughs> like what they do. And then the the seventh team here should be LSU, but I am really curious to find out what happens if that offense isn't top five level and the defense is still as bad as it's been for uh, the entire Will Wade tenure. It is a little weird to me that Will Wade was a defensive guy and is yet to have anything resembling a good defense at LSU. Uh, the other candidates, uh, Mississippi you know what blows State, my mind? could be Will. What? Let's let's hear it. <laughs> Will Wade still having a college basketball job? That that still blows my mind. He's still there, and I, it's, it is kind of fun to watch like him continuously calling LSU and the NCAA's bluff. And I do I, if they were to ever miss the NCAA tournament, I would think it might be like an immediate firing. But uh, <laughs> their 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 goal of being the don't give enough athletic department with regards to. Everything they do is uh, both horrifying and admirable in its own strange way. The the other candidates for the tournament, I think Mississippi State could be in the mix, as could Ole Miss, but those that would be about it. I can't really envision any any of like the South Carolina, Vanderbilt, Mizzou, and um, especially Georgia tier making it. Uh, particularly the latter two, particularly Georgia, who I think has a real shot to finish with under three wins in conference play this year um i'm willing to be wrong on these but none of those five really have the returning talent or the incoming talent you would typically expect from tournament teams uh but weirdly enough i would say vandy is probably closest if pippen chooses to come back um it seems kind of up in the air because i noticed he did not get an nba combine invite which was a little weird to me uh so that could sway him to return to vandy but he could also just day so yeah we didn't even talk about vandy like that jerry stackhouse got a long way to go there they were awful last year just awful they, they've been awful for like three straight seasons and mm-hmm. no one 
that is another school where, to me, you should eternally be better than you actually are. Yeah. I understand the academic restrictions, of course. I mean, those are, or, I mean, that, Vanderbilt is the hardest school to get into in the SEC. But, like, Kevin Stallings had them rolling in the late 2000s and, to a lesser extent, the early 2010s. Like, they were consistently a four to six seed in the NCAA tournament. It's not impossible to win there. Wait, so it's not Alabama being the, the most difficult school? to get into in the sec <laughs> it's not I don't think tuscaloosa so. no okay all right that was <laughs> i may have been led astray that's that's a surprise um all right well this has been good uh your la- how about this it is june 17th as they're recording um as we put a pin in the sec let's do acc next week but um um who do you have winning the regular season championship in the SEC this fall, as it stands right now? Uh, this is, uh, it's got to be Alabama. <laughs> it kills me to say this. I'm not going to see Alabama because I think they're going to adjust. I think teams around the conference are going to adjust, and I think we're going to see a lot of change there. Uh, I'm going to say, you know, I'm going to be a homer. I'm going to say Tennessee wins it. I'm going to say Tennessee. Tennessee. Tennessee's loaded. Tennessee's loaded. I, I I I am still at the point where I would rather have them finish like second or third in the regular season if it meant they would finally, uh, before hell freezes over and the world ends, actually win the SEC tournament. I would genuinely take that over any regular season title. It's just the there's been too much heartbreak. Yeah. When you I mean 1979 is a long friggin' time. It is. It is. For any. It is. All right, Will. Way longer than I can say it. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Will, we should go check out your work at statsbywill.com. Uh, follow you. The same handle. Uh, this was good. I'm excited for this. I think this will be good. I think having a stat-based approach and uh, doing our own spin on Kim Palm and everything with uh, college basketball I think will be fun. I think there's... There's real stuff we can do here. So we'll keep figuring out and tinkering and uh, get into stuff before we get into actual game tape and everything that we can uh, parse through. But, Will, thank you so much for making the time. Uh, Let's talk next week. Absolutely. I hope your audience enjoys hearing uh, a more Americanized Nathan Fielder talk about basketball stats. Hey, I'm very pro Nathan Fielder. Um, Like, whenever we have a college basketball Nathan Fielder. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah.